Hello, welcome to Drop a Line. My name is Parita. And I'm Edwina. And today we're going to talk about what we do. That is what we're doing in our careers, our jobs, what we're doing as money makers. Money makers. Maybe one day. <laughs> At least enough money to pay our student debts. Right. We're paying citizens. Yeah. We pay taxes now. So, I mean, I guess to start, what do you do, Parita? I am currently a substance abuse counselor at a methadone clinic. And yeah, so generally at my workplace, I would work on both substance abuse and mental health. Um, but at our clinic, since it's specifically a methadone clinic where people come to get sort of maintenance meds or uh, to abate like an opiate addiction, uh, we're considered mental health, I mean, substance abuse counselors. What about you? Uh, so I'm a PhD student and I don't do as impressive work as you do because I don't work with people directly almost ever. I study people, but that's you know, good. I don't very different contact here. I don't think anything's more impressive than the other. I mean, we both make an impact in different ways and we both do something. Um, that affects people differently because with your work, which you will um, explain more, obviously, does impact people in some way, um, and it's going to. It depends on like if it's direct, whether it's direct contact or indirect contact. It's something that is, you know, sort of impacting the people around you, impacting your environment, your society, your culture, your generation, um, and people will learn more about that based on what you're about to say next can you <laughs> tell us a little bit about what you do yeah so of course that that's true um so as a phd student essentially in the netherlands you are an employed researcher for the university that's how it is here at least in Groningen, and i'm sure in other places other universities in the netherlands and for me, I work at the Human Resources and Organizational Behavior Department at the Faculty of Economics and Business here, and it sounds really strict and uptight, but I'm actually a psychologist. I've done all of my higher education in psychology, and really and truly, I study people in that department because I'm actually interested in social and organizational psychology, and there's a whole lot of overlap between what they do at the social science faculty with organizational um, and social questions and research areas there and what they do at the human resource and organizational behavior department there. So a lot of the times it is quite common that there's a lot of switching around when it comes to professionals there. I, was, I just thought like, for someone that's going into the same field as you, who ha who's in a PhD program, is it quite likely that they can end up in any faculty? Um, because you're, you describe like an overlap between like social psychology, organizational psychology, um, business. There's an overlap there. So could you have potentially ended up in it with any faculty? Potentially, yeah. The, the rules aren't as strict as when you're applying for a master's program or even a bachelor's program when you're coming out of high school. So I think at that point in time, 
how it works in the Netherlands, at least I know in North America, it's different. But if you have a project or if you're interested in a project and you show the capabilities that you've thought it through and you know your theoretical context behind any area that a potential supervisor or a potential department is interested in, then you're a viable candidate. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. So there's also a whole lot of interdisciplinary hopping going around. Okay, makes sense. So you kind of knew naturally, like when you were looking for a faculty to be a part of, to network with different people from different faculties, as opposed to just sort of staying in um, one discipline yeah yeah most definitely and that also is done from a strategic position because a lot of phd positions aren't freely given as i said before it's an employed position so there are places that fill up and there aren't a whole lot of places so to just expand your options as much as possible it's smart to look at other areas that you could potentially fit in and other schools of course yeah I think that's really helpful for people to know, because especially people that want to do research, just thinking about how I would approach a situation, which is, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing and you're doing what you're doing. But my mind would obviously go to um, keywords and I'd probably look in a very specific um, faculty. And if I couldn't get in there, I would feel like there are no more opportunities for me. I'd be like, oh, this specific field is not accepting what I have to offer. I wouldn't think. I guess it depends on the work you're doing and what you're studying in which you decided that it would be of use to, you know, check at uh, a business faculty. Mm-hmm. But um, I think my mind has always been very one track um, in terms of what I want to do. And so, you know, you don't necessarily think to check um, through like a variety of different options, a, var- a variety of different faculties, a, var- a variety of different um people that might be interested in your work for um, any specific purpose. So that's that's really useful information I think people would need to know that are kind of getting into the same um, stride as you. Yeah. And funnily enough, we both have quite similar backgrounds in terms of higher education and even, you know, secondary education since we went to the same high school. But we came out with pretty different professions, I would say. Um, and that probably speaks to why you thought of the certain tracks that you had to take when you were making career decisions because of what you were doing, what you were interested in. I think personally, as a social psychologist or a social and organizational psychologist, we're kind of trained to think outside of the box because no one no one is specifically looking in a business or no one is specifically looking in industry for a social and organizational psychologist. We have to do a whole lot of branding in terms of, oh, we're consultants or advisors or, you know, these kinds of synonyms that we kind of fit into. And, and we are trained and qualified to do, but people, they don't think of, social psychologists they don't think of organizational psychologists as researchers um that could benefit them directly so there is a whole lot of branding in that department how did you kind of come upon this idea that you wanted to do such social psychology more so you want to do research in social psychology because like you said we both had similar 
um, primary, secondary, um, and higher education. Um, so how did you kind of decide that you wanted to go to the research route? I don't know. I think to a large extent, it just kind of happened to me and I went along with it. This is brutally honest. I just, yeah. I did my bachelor's. I knew what I wanted to do then, at least the area. I, yeah. I don't know. I think all throughout my higher education, I just, I just did things based on what seemed cool. And mm-hmm. after high school, I thought, okay, well, I like people. Studying people sounds interesting. Let's give psychology a go. And then I did my bachelor's in psychology and I picked the area that I liked the most, organizational psychology. I stuck with it. And when you're in the university or at least when you're in a research university and they promote academia and promote research so much, I don't know, maybe I'm really gullible or susceptible to these influences. But I, I just thought, oh, yeah, this sounds pretty cool I get to do things that I like so that's how I stuck with research in the end because it was something that I was trained to do ever since I was in my bachelor and in my master it was super intense because it was a research master and they they they're literally putting you um, in a program that prepares you to do a PhD program my master was so intense compared to what I'm doing right now I have no idea and yeah, this this is what I do and this is what I can do and will continue doing, will continue improving doing. And that's just how it's been. I've never really questioned it. And it really does speak to, like, the type of work you do does speak to what you described. Throughout your education, you always just sort of observed what happened to you, absorbed it, um, and sort of incorporated it into your life, which is, to me what seems like social psychology is and research because it always starts with an idea it starts with like you observing your environment having an idea questioning it and then just sort of um you know researching it but it seems like you are probably pretty observant and just sort of incorporating like a lot of ideas that you observe around you and like you say sort of going along with it yeah i think for there's always there is always personality um, in the equation as well, and how how you fit to a certain career, um, if you like it and such. And I just thought, aside from my academics and what I was doing in school, there there were interests that I had. So I'm interested in a lot of gender studies and gender equality movements, and it was a really good opportunity for me to combine these two things and incorporate it in. Uh, work setting, which is also something that I was interested in and was, I had a vested interest in looking more into it. And it it just seemed like a really good intersection of things for me to continue to pursue. And I have no idea how, how things will be afterwards, because the prospects of having a job after a PhD or having a sustainable job in academia is always proclaimed to be quite dodgy. I mean, there's uncertainty behind it. There's uncertainty behind any career path. But it's it's been something that I've enjoyed doing. So what exactly, when you say like after you finish your degree, what does it, what does the process look like for continuing a career in this field and specifically doing research? Because most people 
generally think of gaining a career after school as, you know, just sending in an application online or something or reaching out to employers, networking uh, and getting a job like a standard. They have a place to work. They go to work every day. But what does it look like to continue a career and get a job as uh, someone who does research? That's a very good question, and I'm not completely clear on that, to be honest. Okay. I think there are there are different paths if you solely want to continue with research. If you want to continue being a researcher, you don't have to stay in academia. There are also research institutes and applied research firms that would be happy to take PhD students after they're finished their pro- they've finished their program, and then you work for industries. Um, doing some consulting or advising or really just looking into a specific problem that an organization has and you just get into it and you tell them what's up. And for academia, it's actually pretty standard. It's, It's pretty equivalent to what you've mentioned. So after you do your PhD program, of course, you have networks and there are people who you know that can make things easier. But essentially, you also just have to send in an application uh, to get a postdoc position or to get an assistant professorship position and based on what you've done in your PhD program, how closely it aligns to the department that you're applying for, then you're considered a viable candidate. Yeah, so it's like a wide, you're reaching out to people of all different walks of life. Like for example, for me, when I was looking for jobs, I specifically looked for you know, I, I searched for clinics, people that were employing um, at clinics to be counselors. But as a someone in academia, you'd sort of look to anyone, like big organizations from anywhere from like big organizations to maybe more small scale and trying to make it um, like bigger in their field or more make themselves more known in their community and their field. Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of opportunities. Right now, I'm speaking specifically from a social and organizational point of view or an HR OB point of view, OB being organizational behavior. Um, but I can imagine it's a similar story if you think of, I don't know, clinical psychologists who are into research. They might not only reach out to clinics, but hospitals. They might reach out to organizations for industrial you know occupational therapy kinds of situations so I mean as psychologists I I think as as you and I have experienced we can fit into many different contexts and still function quite well right and it seems like you know you'd have a big part of it seems to be networking and just sort of expanding your reach to as many people as possible so that, you know, you're more aware of opportunities and opportunities are more aware of you. So sort of like making yourself known in your in your space. Yeah, definitely. In a lot of ways, I think the specific occupation that I have now is very eclectic in that it's not, I mean, it can be a standard nine to five job, but it doesn't have to be. There are very limited boundaries. There's just one end goal of you're supposed to, produce this many chapters and this many publications at least to get into a position in academia or to finish your PhD program but otherwise there's no holds bar really as long as you get your work done no one no one really checks up on you there you have supervisors but no one regulates or monitors you 
Sounds like a job that everybody would dream of because I think the general consensus would be that nobody likes to be micromanaged, which, you know, at any nine to five job, you generally are. Yeah, Uh, it sounds like a really privileged kind of concern. But I think what happens to a lot of PhD employees is then figuring out how to manage their time, figuring out how to work functionally with all of this autonomy because you are most of the times coming out as master students and suddenly you have all these responsibilities and within three to five years you have to complete so and so many projects or fill in these chapters so I think the struggle is a little different but you're right it it is quite a unique and privileged position in that you don't have this kind of regulation externally um, and for the most part, it's it's pretty free form. Yeah. Did you take time adjusting to that, or were you? Did you kind of flip right into it? No, I'm not flipping into it. I'm I have not flipped. <laughs> it's it's still a struggle, honestly, because it's very easy to get lost in not having a routine just because you don't have to have a routine. So people theoretically could come in at 3 p.m. to work and then leave at 10 p.m. and no one cares they could never come to work I could live in Australia for for any like no one cares I could just do my work in Australia and no one cares as long as I get my work done and that's that's really fucking cool but then you you don't have that kind of things to hold on to 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 organize your life around so I think that's that's what's people struggle with and I know it's a really bougie struggle compared to other people and their careers I mean you wake up at like insane hours insane hours to get to your work (laughs) no but I can understand that like so I guess the reason that I'm in my field is because um I do need that structure and I feel like if I were to be more freeform and have um that much leeway to be able to like make my own schedule have to or sort of have to schedule myself like my tasks throughout the entire span of the day I probably wouldn't function very well um it's not my strong suit uh so but you from what I understand you seem to do it very well I don't know if you want to talk a little bit like a brief synopsis of what exactly you're studying just in case anybody might be interested. Okay. So I mentioned how before, during my bachelor's studies, I was interested in gender equality movements and gender studies. So my PhD project is largely informed by those interests and what I learned, of course, in my bachelor's studies. We're interested in gender interventions and organizations. And when I mean gender interventions, you can think of any kind of initiative that is put forward by organizations or corporations to improve the position of women in their company. So you can think of female leadership programs or quotas or targets or affirmative action programs, equal opportunity initiatives, these kinds of initiatives, these kinds of setups. And we're interested in whether or not 
these have the same effects for different racial groups of women. So if you have a women's leadership program, would it be as successful for white women as they are for women of color, women who are black, Asian women, Hispanic women, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's, so that's that's what we do. <laughs> that's really cool. That's really amazing. And like, like I said, like you do have a very big impact on you know, people that do go to a standard job, um, because your research and your, I guess, voice in, in that community will have an impact on what is executed in some sort of hospital or field or organization or something. So, That's definitely the dream. Yeah. 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 Towards it. You're, you're right in ingrained with the culture and with the, with the temperature of the times. Um, and I think you're doing really relevant work, a lot of work that people can admire and look up to. And I think you have a lot of people rooting for you. Yes, that I, I think I'm really lucky and I have a lot of support, whether that is personally or, or academically or professionally, whatever it is. I'm very lucky. I have the institutional support and I have the professional support. I think when it comes to academia, I'm a little wary sometimes because there is a whole lot of research going on and it's great and interesting and societally relevant. It's just the transpiration sometimes from academia to actual ground effects. It's it's very difficult and it's it's one of the biggest problems in academia, even in um, such a practical field like human resources and organizational behavior. Um, it is quite difficult to translate these kinds of findings to practical uses. So I think that's why I, I anticipate these kinds of challenges, but it is a different way of working with people, at least working for people in the end, because I think at least I aim to work for people with my PhD project. And I think you also strive to kind of do the same in your profession. And it's just two, two very different ways of approaching that. Right, right. But, you know, you that, I guess that's what makes it a career is that you strive for something. Uh, and eventually, whenever that is, you do achieve it, hopefully, or something, something in that realm is achieved. And something that's something that you can say that you've contributed to. Mm, I, yeah. Yeah, I think that'll happen. I have hope. Yeah. Thank you. And now, let me ask you some questions because, girl, I've been wondering for a long time. Yeah, I'll be on the hot seat. Yep, yep. So tell us, I mean, in a nutshell, what do you do? I work at a methadone clinic, as I mentioned before. It's uh, So methadone's an opiate um, basically re replaces. So if someone uses heroin um, and they're taking methadone, it sort of puts their brain in a, a sort of maintenance phase where they're not necessarily they're not getting high if they're on a manageable dose of methadone uh, so they're able to be productive members of society because them using heroin or another opiate like fentanyl or um, percocets um, have proven to be have proven to make their lives dysfunctional uh, so Instead of just expecting someone to abstain from all that stuff and just sort of come off of it cold turkey, this is sort of a way of reducing harm. Uh, they're not using 
needles, they're not using other paraphernalia, they're not sharing paraphernalia, uh, they're, they're using methadone, which is a controlled substance within four walls where people can observe them so that they're not at risk for an overdose. Um, so basically, the field that I work in is generally known as harm reduction, whereas in the past, a lot of people in substance abuse took more of a abstinence-only point of view. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. I, I work as a counselor in a clinic that practices harm reduction for substance abuse. Okay, okay. There, there was quite a lot in that. Yeah. Um, first thing I want to follow up with. Uh, so from what I've understood, from what you've just told me, when when people are taking methadone, is it a way to then wean off of the harder, more addictive? more harmful substances? Yeah, it's, well, ideally, we as soon as someone starts taking methadone, they'd be completely off of the other substance. But how it actually happens in the field, practically, is that they start taking uh, methadone, and then that does help them sort of reduce the amount of opiates that they're taking from, from the streets. Okay. And, yeah. and as a counselor, what what do you counsel them on? So patients mostly come to their counselors regarding their dose of methadone, how it's making them feel. Uh, and we sort of try to push the envelope a little and encourage them to talk more about, like, behaviorally, what are things that are perpetuating their use? Because like I said, it's ideal for us to expect that everybody will stop using their their opiate that they're using on the street as soon as they start methadone. But the reality of it is that more often than not, like a lot of the census of the clinic is still using, they're still using heroin. So people do still have problems with illicit use. Um, so as a counselor, my job would be to um, find ways to motivate someone, find ways to connect with someone so as to determine what is it they need to sustain themselves once they are off of all illicit substances and also off of methadone in the future? That's pretty great. Yeah, it's 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 difficult work, and it's it's um to be honest, it's pretty somber work because there is not a high success rate uh, for addicts. Uh, chances are they will relapse. Um, but in the same way that you mentioned that you eventually want to have an impact, uh, and translating your work into a practical field is, um, there's, there's a lot that goes into the transition there. There's also a lot of, had a lot of work to be done to make a, a large scale change in, in the impact of the opiate crisis and just getting people to not revert back to using once they've received some sort of treatment. Yeah, it it sounds overall like heavy work. How how do you deal with this work personally, just as a person in your line of job, knowing that it's somber work, knowing that it will take a while before, um, I mean, to describe it crudely, to have a noticeable impact, at least. 
it is difficult um going into it so initially for for graduate school i studied mental health counseling so clinical psychology i was more focused on mental health um and that is something that i want to pursue in the future um more so than substance abuse however it's just that um most entry level jobs in our, in the mental health field involve substance abuse just because that's a very um that's a field that's in need right now so it's something that i knew is very difficult and is very somber but i went into it for the sake of a, a long term achieving a long term goal um at the same time i do find it extremely necessary to treat because a lot of people you know have co-occurring mental health and substance abuse disorders so it's almost as though you know i i feel like it's essential for me to to address someone's substance abuse um to later understand um how it affects mental health so it's it's difficult i have my moments of like you know i want to eventually get to the other side uh and not have to see this anymore because i know it's always going to be happening and that's that's kind of the I- ideology you uh you gain through working in the field is like it's all this is always happening this is just a thing that always happens i was just oblivious to to this all this time and apparently everyone is having some sort of substance abuse problem more than you more than you'd expect um and it's just for me it's at times it can be this race to like you know i want to get on the other end of it and you know acknowledge someone's substance abuse problems but be able to be in a setting where i can really solely focus on the underlying um issues that perpetuate substance abuse because over here at the clinic that i work at it's very you know it's very in your face you're you're talking about the drug itself you're talking about the methadone like the the active dose so it's it's very concentrated in your mind that you're working in a field that doesn't have a very high success rate so it weighs on you but um and then there are those days it kind of teaches you to have like a really appreciate the moments when you see a win which would be um if someone stopped using for like a week or two um if someone is pregnant and you know seeing mothers go through their pregnancy and immediately stopping using um because that sort of tells you that there's such a strong motivation in their life that behaviorally um that can get them to stop using um and of course that's another human life so i'm sure like the the weight of certain factors some factors out, outweigh others in what determines what makes someone stop using but just sort of acknowledging those as a win um yeah that's i think that's really important sort of staying staying sane and not really letting it weigh weigh on your shoulders too much you must have a whole different perspective of what human progress is like being a person who works at your job what do you mean well i think in your position then it really gives you perspective on what it takes for you to appreciate improvement or appreciate signs of effort being used 
Um, and it's really different from the terms that I use in, in my job, for example, when I when I talk about operationalizing what success is, it's definitely not in the same way that you at your job at the same level would would use. Right, right. Absolutely. You, you, you really work to reward, reward, reward whenever you see even the slightest change um, and really appreciate when someone makes if it's like a slight change in attitude, if it's the way they dress, if they, if they got up or at a certain time to get dressed um, to come to our clinic, um, the way they treat the people they bring along, because sometimes they do bring their kids along. So, yeah, I, I, I see how you can say that. Yeah. And so you you talked about how going into substance abuse counseling is quite a natural or quite an organic path if you want to get into mental health or become a clinical psychologist altogether. Um, so the step before being interested in mental health and in clinical psychology, how how did you get there? Being interested in mental health, I guess. So in high school, you would know, um, we, we didn't have a lot of behavior-related classes. Um, I think the closest thing you had to that because you did uh, you did an extra post high school program before you went to college uh, where you had a theory of knowledge class. And that's, I don't even know exactly what that class was about, but it seems to be that that was the closest thing to a psychology class or a behavior class that we had in high school. Um, and I think I just sort of got to know like, I was always very observant of people. I always wanted to know why people do the things they they do. Um, I've had family members who um, have dealt with developmental disabilities, and I had never really understood where where that was stemming from. Why people function differently than perhaps I did, or perhaps the people around me in school did. So just knowing that there was nothing available in high school to study that. Um, I guess I just wanted to study more about it and see if it did uh, sort of confirm my interest, which it, which it ended up doing. This is something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. I haven't had like a lot of um, changes in my path. I just sort of always knew that I, I wanted to know more about people, like working with people and being of service to them in some way. Okay. It's it's quite comparable, I think, to how I also got into my line of work. I know I said before that it just kind of happened to me, but I I think a part of the story is that in our high school in St. Martin, there was very little talk about... Mm, so I wouldn't limit it to just behavior, just, but just about... Um, just just psychology entirely like we had social sciences but it was more from a distant point of view talking about things like geography or tourism um and there was also some kind of history but it was quite limited and just the study of people and attitudes and social cognition that was something that I felt like I missed out a lot on and it was something that I wanted to explore further because it seemed interesting and it sounds like it's a bit of a similar story for you as well. Yeah, like you want what you can't have. But yeah, on our island entirely, it was just uncommon. So it's 
I guess that probably just up to the curiosity for me and that's how it, how it all started. Yeah. And so when, when you're working, do you often tackle all of your job responsibilities alone? Do you have someone to report to? Do you work with someone? What's it like? Right. So we have like an interdisciplinary team. We have, um, well, yeah. What does that mean? So that means we have a a director that oversees the entire clinic, all the operations. Then we have uh, supervisors that are right under the clinic director, but that report to, uh, or that the counselors report to their counselors, their nurses, their doctors. And sometimes you'll have like a financial department right there because a lot of these clinics do um, take people's insurance, but there's some that, uh, you know, some patients have to be, have to just sort of pay out of their pocket. So there's like a financial team. So we all sort of work together in this one clinic um, and we have to communicate with each other uh, more than you think because a nurse would need to know if, if, a patient comes and tells me that they need, they, they'll probably come to me about wanting to change their dose. And I encourage them to come to me uh, about it. And you'd think that that's more of a medical issue, but um, I would go on to sort of like prompt questions like what exact, what are the symptoms you're experiencing? Because I, I have to be sort of part of that decision as to whether someone is just, you know, following that grain of, seeking drugs or seeking like a really high dose because like I said generally you don't get high on methadone but if you're at a high enough dose um you can possibly have some symptoms that um make you feel high but um but yeah so I in that way we communicate with different departments and then I I have my own colleagues uh within my department other counselors that uh We help each other out with like tasks because there's so many, there's a range of tasks that you have to do in a day uh, to maintain each person's case history. So we we sort of like hand off tasks to each other uh, sometimes to help each other out. We're obviously primarily in charge of our own caseload, which means like we have an allotted amount of people that we see primarily, but... um, you know, you can always like toggle tasks to an employee, like a colleague um, within your department to help out with the with the upkeep of someone's record. Okay. And and day to day, because I have no routine. I, I have no structure in my days. I, I Just whenever things come up, then I do them at the time or I don't do them at the time and there are no consequences. But for you where you have to wake up at like what 3 4 a.m every day and make it to the clinic at 5 or 6 a.m does do your days change from day to day for what you have to do um yeah so i wake up at four i have to be at work at five you know every day will look different because you know working in the field that i do you have to expect the unexpected um Obviously, there's like a standard set of tasks that you have to do. For example, just like every time you meet with someone, you write a note about it. Um, When you have someone permanently on your caseload, you want to do a treatment plan for them that like outlines what they want to achieve during their time at the clinic. 
uh, stuff like that. So that's standard, but sometimes there might be someone who has an emergency who needs to travel. So what does one do if they're on methadone and they have to travel to uh, some other state or some other country? Sometimes we have to sort of coordinate that and call um, any other clinic who'd be willing to accept them to dose with them for like a, a set amount of time that they want to travel. So that that's something that would come up just on the fly. Sometimes we're also sort of like, you know, as, as, as an employee there, you have to model the right behavior for anyone that comes into the clinic. Um, so we have to be ready to handle any sort of behavioral issue, any sort of outburst, um, tantrum mm, incident, as we would call it technically over there, uh, because you, whenever something happens like that and whoever's observant to that would have to write an incident report. So any incidents that happen at, at the clinic, which is at least, you know, there are a couple per day, um, that'll change the course of your day because you have to attend to that. Uh, you never know who's going to be observant, like privy to the, to the incident. So yeah. that's something that would bear us off of our so-called schedule but you know there really is um a level of time management that you you do have to implement because i'm sure you have deadlines for certain for certain things uh to upkeep in in, in a patient's record but um you can choose when you update those things if i'm making sense so if i had a week um, to finish everyone's notes, but I had a month to finish everyone's treatment plans, then I'd, you know, arrange my time just so that, um, you know, I'd, ne I'd know when to do what type of paperwork, and I'd sort of intersperse that between the time that I'm making appointments to see people to do the actual therapy piece of it. So there, there's a level of variety in how you structure your days. Okay. I, I can imagine that there are certain deadlines that are dependent on the patient. Uh, for example, you want to get something done before you see your patient the next time. But are there other deadlines um, that are not patient-bound? And if there are, who sets these deadlines? The, the one example that I can think of right now off the top of my head is um, we have to have a certain case to discuss at a... Um, at a meeting every week. So that's kind of a deadline because we have that meeting every week and we have to be prepared to present that case to our team so that we can get feedback um, on that particular patient that we present on. So that's a weekly deadline that's usually coordinated by our supervisors. They ensure that we, they have the meeting in the first place to ensure that we are, you know, taking an, a close, hard look at each case individually and determining problems that each case is having, um, trying to get like a wide variety of um, feedback from the entire team so that, so that we're choosing the best course of treatment for each patient. Okay. So there, there is a level of guidance from your supervisors or at least from someone else that could give you a second or third opinion. You're not just going at it alone. Absolutely, absolutely. We have to we have to discuss everything as a team. And that's also just how we individualize everyone's treatment because 
it's it's easy to put everybody in a box and just sort of say like this is what they have to do next and this is how they are, they're going to get better but by bringing each case individually to a supervisor bring bringing it to your team you do get a variety of responses and you are able to sort of curate uh, a a plan for each individual person based on their unique circumstances so that uh, they're getting the best treatment they can. Yeah. Okay. It does seem that there is a whole lot of thought put into these patients, a lot of consideration for, for you guys to help them help themselves, I guess, ultimately. And, you know, I know you said that before it's hard sometimes to, to really see the the benefits or I guess the consequences, the immediate consequences, the work of the work you do, but it it all sounds really amazing, Parita. I can't I can't even believe it. I appreciate you saying that. It, like I said, it, that is something that you have to sort of mentally like bring your mind back to when you're working in the field because it is easy to get discouraged and be like, you know, why am I doing this? Um, but you know, just sort of looking bigger picture. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is important to sort of bring yourself back to it. So because it's it's so important, is there is there something that's structurally present for clinics? I don't know if they have the budget for it or if, if this there is this kind of system where you meet up with other counselors or you meet up with someone and, and that you're reminded regularly to, to not lose focus of, having that meaning in your job i imagine it gets pretty overwhelming sometimes and you you can forget that or you can lose sight of that so is there's anything set in place that encourages i guess encourages morale among the clinicians that are are generally in in these kinds of clinics it really depends on where you go um most organizations I would hope has an EAP and employee assistance program um, and that but that usually refers to a particular instance of grief in a in a counselor's life um, whether they've lost a patient or even personally it even applies if they have something going on in their personal life that's affecting their work they would talk to an EAP counselor which usually is provided by the organization or they, they give you the contact of that person um, on a larger scale, I think, so I've just started at the current job that I'm at, so I don't know fully, um, what their system in place is, but I think on a large scale, it's important for each organization a way of building morale amongst each other. So the last place I worked at, um, we had a monthly potluck, so we'd all get together, uh, we'd have a staff meeting and we'd bring uh, different dishes and we'd um, instead of like talking about the clinic and talking about operations and policies and procedures and rules and regulations and all that stuff uh, we just sit down and eat and just sort of talk about anything and and just know, enjoy each, each other's company and that would just sort of foster this ability for um, the team to confide in each other to be very um, honest with one with one another just stating that you know we do a very hard job um, but we're at the end of the day, we, we all support each other. So, I mean, that was one component of, of something that can be implemented to promote morale um, and make sure that someone doesn't suffer from burnout. Um, 
Right now, I'm not super familiar with what we do at my current clinic. Um, I do know that we happen, we do have a very supportive staff. Everyone is very helpful, um, very welcoming. You would think that everyone seems very stressed out and very like angry all of the time or very um, upset or, you know, very frustrated most of the time. But what I've observed in the workplace that I have right now is everyone, they subconsciously know, like, we have so much to do and uh, there's so much that can go wrong. And there's this person that's screaming out in the lobby and there's someone that's dealing drugs in the parking lot and uh, someone sp spilled their methadone and someone's vomiting their methadone now. So all of this is going on. But you know what? We're here. We're going to go home at 1.30. Uh, we'll come back tomorrow, and then somebody's going to come in with their story about, you know, how they how they finally, you know, stopped using something for for a day. They they went a day without using, or they got a job, or they, you know, uh, they finally got a house. So, yeah, it, it's like everyone that I see at my clinic right now is able to keep this lighthearted attitude, and they seem to be very focused and and good at you know not focusing on something that can be very heavy it really as i said before gives you a lot of perspective on what what you should see as progress no matter how big or small or continued or discontinued it is how how efforts can come in many forms and how you should be appreciative of them is there anything that you would want to tell someone who's on their way to becoming a substance abuse counselor or mental health professional? What would you tell little Perita, high school Perita, who wants to study psychology right. in uh, uni? Right. I think, and it's something that I continue to tell myself to do every day, is just be open-minded, try to really adopt this attitude of non-judgment. Um, cause like I said, you, you just never know what you, who you'll meet in the day in whatever profession you're in. Um, but is, especially in the profession that I am in, you just have to learn to expect the unexpected and not judge someone for it. I'm sure little Parita back then would have really appreciated that advice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> times where, you know, like growing in the field, you have to make a very immediate mental switch when you see something and you're about to make a judgment or when you already do make a judgment and you're like, oh, but that, I need to not think that way. And I need to, you know, be more of like a, have more of a progressive mind um, and hope for the progress of someone. So that's basically what, what I do. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah, in a really big nutshell. Yeah. Or is there anything you want to, I don't know, ask me or ask about me? Well, a fun question, I guess, like, any workplace that I've been in, which has been, like, two, um, <laughs> to think of, like, different characters in the workplace. Um, I, I know maybe listeners have watched The Office, but I always, like, relate oh to people, like, someone who's the person who's always by the vending machines, someone who has like water cooler conversation, someone who's like, 
um, kind of like takes naps in their office or whatever. So do you have any, like, I was interested in this because you might have a different work environment. Sometimes you uh, might not necessarily like work at an office, but like, do you get to see those dynamics? Do you have like these different characters around you? Let me tell you, I do have some characters around. <laughs> and I personally identify as the napper. Are you? I don't, I don't ever take the naps, but I want to take the naps. <laughs> if I could take the naps, I would. Yes. But it's, it's different because uh, the office that I work in, there, there are a maximum four people with me included. And not everyone shows up to work at the office all the time. So there could be a lot of people who tend to work at home or find another place of work, whether that be in a cafe or they're abroad or something. As I guess as PhD students, there are quite a lot of opportunities for you to do exciting research days or go to conferences and such. So you're not always office bound. And there could be the case that um, for weeks or months on end, you, you don't really see anyone else in the office. So for me, I only regularly interact with two people and they're nuts. They're really kooky. I think researchers in HR and human resources or social psychology, they're, you know, they're usually the nutty kind. They have personality, but they're so smart. Um, everyone's always super capable. One of them collects pictures of memes and cats. And, you know, you, you have a lot of eclectic, unique personalities. And that's that's kind of great because I think... My position as a PhD student and being in academia, it's privileged in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that I cherish the most is that it's it's a little bit of a playground in many senses of the word. We we can we can do whatever our hearts desires and our research interests to I mean of course to a degree, but also in how we work and what kinds of hats we decide to put on and you know figurative hats not literal hats but also literal hats and that's that's kind of cool that freedom is really cool and a lot of the times researchers are also just humans with their families and kids and they show up with their dogs and you just you just see them as people and you work with them and they're also super competent at the same time and that's really nice yeah yeah, I can, I can identify with that sentiment. You really do. Like I said, that's something that just sort of saves um, saves my day for me is just being able to have people around you and get to know them under under the veil of what they're classified as in their work, workspace. So, you know, the people around you aren't just people that just do research and they're not the stereotypical image of what someone would think of a researcher as being. Uh, same for clinicians um, or counselors um, people often would see them as a shrink and they'd make certain assumptions about them but um, really sort of getting to be in that field and getting to know your co-workers as you know these multifaceted people beyond uh, what they do that's always a help yeah yeah, yeah. you think you're a napper a napper. Um, I've so there are two people in my uh, workspace that are self 
proclaimed nappers and they've encouraged me to do so just because my work hours are pretty crazy and um, I'm still like two months in I'm still adjusting to it um, so it's encouraged by 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 most but I can't I can't do it I don't know it's, it's I can't do it Funnily enough, I had a friend who also went to an an HR workshop of some kind, and they also recommended that we take naps in our offices, which is weird because we can't have any kinds of like bed furniture or sofa furniture around. Recently, I've discovered the ostrich pillow where it's this pillow that encapsulates your head in darkness. And then you it's also really cushiony and you can lay your head on the table with it and you're in darkness but also lying down on a really soft cushion yeah it's really obvious that you're napping but people are humans i might get myself one yeah i think that's kind of like the culture that we're getting into too like to optimize productivity i mean why did we have nap time in kindergarten people would be a lot more productive willing to work energized when they're awake i feel like a new person after a nap (laughs) a new person i would probably benefit from like an ostrich pillow because i'm not a nap the reason i'm not a napper is not because like i have the conscience of like i feel bad about napping it's because i just can't like i can't nap sitting upright in a chair there is a need there is a need I think I'm more of the I'm the person who keeps refilling the coffee. I'm the only one that refills the coffee in the kitchen. Ah, okay. I refill the pot for everybody. We're all for ourselves. <laughs> we we don't refill for nobody. No, I'm joking. Everyone's really nice there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I think yeah, we got to learn a lot about each other in a whole different dimension. I never knew all this stuff about you and why you chose your job and most definitely yeah. what you do. It's Same. so crazy. I I knew your your job was heavy, but this is a whole other appreciation for what you do every day. Yeah, and you as well. Like, there's so much. I guess that just goes to so show. Like, no matter you know, we've we've been friends for the longest time, but there's just so much that we could learn about each other, and I think that's why we started this thing so that we yeah. could draw the lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and look at us, second episode, really going at it. Yep, two episodes and we're going to drive it home. We would want you to drop us a line so that we could get to know um, our audience. Yes, and thank you very much for tuning in and listening. Yeah, we really do appreciate it. We We hope that we inspired some of you or that our career paths or life trajectories are remotely interesting for you to listen to. And... You know, we hope that it makes a positive contribution in your day, in your life. Thanks for checking in.